Welcome to episode two of Real Gone. Last time we looked at how New York's 1926 cabaret laws imposed restrictions on jazz musicians and small music clubs in the decades that followed. In this episode, we're going to discuss the network of downtown jazz lofts created by experimental musicians in the early 1970s. We'll examine how the spirit of independence and artistic adventure dovetailed with a determined organization by jazz musicians to create an alternative to the traditional music industry platforms. These factors culminated in the formation of the New York Musicians Organization and the counter-festival staged by that organization to challenge the imposition of the Newport Jazz Festival, which was held in New York City for the first time in 1972. The growth and decline of the jazz loft scene is representative of the changing economic conditions of the city at this time and how the ethics of black nationalism were adopted by many jazz musicians as a central part of their personal and musical identity. The artistic renaissance of Soho, the name given to the neighbourhoods south of Houston Street, close to Greenwich Village, and the adjacent neighbourhoods of Noho and Tribeca in the 1970s and beyond, had its roots in the urban crisis which New York faced, along with other American cities in the post-war years, where deindustrialization, suburbanization, and the failures of urban renewal had created a desolate landscape in certain parts of the city. Soho's industrial decline was rooted in specific industries, such as textile and waste paper recycling, warehousing and light manufacturing, which were in a state of decline, as well as general unsuitability of loft buildings for modern industry. Deindustrialization in Soho and nearby areas had created a dense collection of vacant loft buildings close to the amenities of Greenwich Village, Little Italy and Chinatown. The vacancies in these industrial buildings were seized on by artists and musicians, including painters, sculptors and the city's free jazz pioneers, along with their young disciples, to create new venues for musical expression and performance. These venues enabled artists to more effectively seize the means of musical production and the representation of their musical output. New York's jazz loft scene was influenced by the artists of the previous decade, most notably the spiritual jazz of John Coltrane and the experimental free jazz of Albert Eiler and Ornette Coleman. The avant-garde loft artists were respectful of jazz tradition, but sounded like nothing that came before. New York's energy music, as it was referred to by saxophonist Archie Shepp, was played without any concern for traditional song structure or standard instrumental presentation. The unpredictable and adventurous nature of the music did not meet the favour of the traditional jazz clubs, prompting the artists to create an infrastructure of their own. The 1981 documentary Imagine the Sound, which features astounding live studio performances by Cecil Taylor, Archie Shepp, uh, pianist Paul Blay and Bill Dixon, valuably examines the motivations of the cutting-edge jazz artists of this era. Part of the motivation for artists using downtown loft space in the late 60s and early 70s was to break from the orthodoxy and traditionalism of the established galleries, clubs and concert halls and the rigidity of the cabaret licensing authority. Others like Sonny Rollins, who practiced saxophone day and night on the pedestrian walkway under the Williamsburg Bridge to escape the tight space of his Lower East Side tenement apartment, just needed room to play whenever and whatever he wanted. In 1968, free jazz pioneer Ornette Coleman 
established Artists House at 131 Prince Street in Soho, which functioned as a combination of performance space, recording studio, clubhouse and apartment. Coleman had been inspired by the use to which his friend and Fluxus artist Yoko Ono had put her loft at 112 Chamber Street during the 1960s. By 1970, Coleman was hosting occasional performances of music and dance, fostering an informal atmosphere that was typical of loft gatherings. The space was open to the public, with no admission charge required of audience members. Artists House, in turn, inspired many other avant-garde jazz musicians to take the same approach. Coleman closed the venue in 1974, just as the jazz loft scene was reaching its peak. Bass player and percussionist Juma Sultan moved from San Francisco to New York in 1966, where he divided his time between the Lower East Side of Manhattan and Woodstock in upstate New York. He joined Jimi Hendrix's band and played at Jimi's legendary Woodstock performance in 1969. He also organised workshops, concerts and festivals out of the Eldridge Street loft named Studio Wee, opened in 1969, which he operated along with trumpeter James Dubois. Sultan also built a recording studio in Wee that musicians could rent to record rehearsals, demos or even commercial albums. Importantly, Sultan also maintained an extensive archive of musical activities at Studio Wee, allowing future generations to celebrate the workings and values of this prototypical jazz loft. The Total Refreshment Centre in modern-day Hackney, which has functioned as an incubator for the vibrant London jazz scene, hosting concerts by the likes of Sons of Kemet, Comet is Coming and Alabaster to Plume, can be considered a spiritual successor to venues like Studio Wee. The creation of Studio Wee is a perfect example of how post-industrial loft space in the Soho area of downtown Manhattan was occupied and renovated by artists seeking to turn the dereliction of vacant space and the inertia of landlords to their own creative ends. In the mid-1960s, the building that housed Studio Wee was leased by pianist Burton Green from an absentee landlord who was reluctant to go near the building, which at the time was populated by junkies and others in desperate circumstances. Green agreed to occupy the building on a rent-free basis in exchange for keeping the upstairs loft free from undesirable occupiers, cleaning the stairways and carrying out any necessary occasional repairs. Before leaving to tour Europe, Burton Green was approached by James Dubois, a Pittsburgh native who played trumpet in jazz groups that featured Green. Dubois expressed interest in managing the building while Green was abroad and mentioned that he was searching for a space to host jam sessions and rehearsals. Green extended his stay in Europe, temporarily at first but then permanently. James Dubois became the building's permanent resident, inheriting Green's prior arrangement with his landlord. James Dubois had played in Pittsburgh in early rock and roll bands, but became fascinated with jazz as a teenager. He admired the local venue The Musicians Club, a hall operated by Pittsburgh's Black Musicians Union, Local 471 of the American Federation of Musicians. The space was administered entirely by the musicians, and operated as a nightclub, rehearsal hall, meeting facility and business centre. The club provided employment opportunities but served also as a community centre and operated as an advocacy group that lobbied for the rights of African American artists. It remained in operation until 1965, when Local 471 merged with the White Local 60 as part of a nationwide initiative to integrate AFM chapters. This model of self-production for black artists left a major impression on James Dubois. He firmly believed that musicians should be in control of their own affairs, and while living in Cleveland during the 1950s, he organised concerts in a venue he named the Cleveland Cultural Centre. In Pittsburgh during the 1960s, he acquired space in an abandoned glass factory on Central Avenue, 
and there established a not-for-profit operation known as the Society of Universal Cultural Arts, or SOUCA. The SOUCA focused primarily on promoting concerts and sourcing work for musicians to play at local events. There was a clear intent and method to Dubois' approach, which was a common characteristic of other loft operators in the New York jazz scene. Dubois revived the SOUCA as Studio Wii. In 1974, James Dubois described the condition of the building he took over as an archetype of urban blight. He embarked on a series of major renovations, installing a new roof, upgrading plumbing, repairing cracks in the walls and stabilising brickwork. Dubois installed a stage on the sixth floor and began hosting raucous all-night free jazz jam sessions. He named the space Studio Wii, a community music project. In 1969, Wii started hosting public concerts, and by 1970, Wii hosted a music festival called Three Days of Peace Between the Years. The event featured several musicians, including Sam Rivers and Rashid Ali, who would later open their own influential loft venues. As Dubois had access to multiple floors in the building, the festival presented simultaneous sets in multiple rooms. The success of this festival and others prompted a gradual expansion of Studio Wii's programming and also its funding. Dubois obtained his first presenting grant from the New York State Council of the Arts in 1972, allowing him to stage another ambitious series of concerts that spring. The model of sourcing grant funding for special events, mixed with a dense schedule of more casual presentations, where door charges covered expenses, would become the modus operandi for Studio Wii and other independent jazz lofts throughout the city. The 1971 Newport Jazz Festival, held in its traditional home of Rhode Island, had been a problematic event. Large crowds of festival goers, reportedly around 12,000 people, supposedly inspired by the notion of free music at Woodstock the year before, crashed the festival site without paying, leading to a full-scale riot. Although a jazz festival in name, the inclusion of bands such as Led Zeppelin, Jethro Tull, and in 1971, the Allman Brothers, had attracted a large number of rock music fans. This alarmed the conservative townsfolk, meaning the decision by its organiser George Wine to move the festival to New York City the following year was not entirely voluntary. Hosting the Newport Jazz Festival in the city meant a change in the outdoor festival format was required. Instead, concerts were staged at prestigious venues such as Carnegie Hall, Radio City Music Hall and the Lincoln Center's Philharmonic Hall. The 1972 Newport Jazz Festival in New York City did produce brilliant performances by, among others, avant-garde musicians Ornette Coleman and Cecil Taylor. Legendary artists like Miles Davis and McCoy Tyner also performed. However, the young loft artists were largely ignored in what was a fairly traditional lineup of established artists from the swing and bebop eras. Mayor John Lindsay sat on the festival planning committee. The festival was welcomed by city authorities and even presented as a means of stimulating the city's flagging jazz economy, which was held to be at a low ebb in 1971. The 1972 Newport Festival in New York was seen by many as too safe, favouring established artists at the expense of younger musicians and those involved in the avant-garde. The racial and economic implications of the festival also came under scrutiny. Upscale midtown concert halls had been selected, while Harlem and other black communities were disregarded for hosting concerts. It was Juma Sultan's opinion that George Wine was not hiring black musicians who are a part of and represent this city in jazz today. Archie Shepp was public in his criticism that the festival had not sought the input of black musicians at an organisational level. The influence of black nationalism in the arts was evident at this time, 
with more black artists seeking to exercise control over their own music at both artistic and organisational level. Growing numbers of complaints led to meetings at the University of the Streets, a community centre at 7th Street and Avenue A. Among the organisers were James Dubois, Jima Sultan, Milford Graves, Sam Rivers, Rashid Ali and flautist Ali Abui. In addition to Dubois' work at Studio Wee, Jima Sultan and Abui had organised the Aboriginal Music Society in Woodstock. Rivers had established a teaching studio in Harlem before opening his own jazz loft at Studio Rivby. Rashid Ali and Milford Graves had been involved in Bill Dixon's October Revolution in 1964, a collective showcase for young experimental jazz musicians playing in the city at that time. All these musicians had to some extent been concerned with strategies for independence and self-determination for jazz musicians prior to the arrival of Newport Jazz Festival in the city. These musicians eventually adopted the moniker the New York Musicians' Organization, or NYMO, to consolidate their efforts and work towards permanent collective representation and promotion for its artist members. This collectivist approach by the NYMO had precedent in organizations formed by New York jazz musicians in the previous decade. The short-lived Jazz Artists Guild, led by Charles Mingus and Max Roach, was formed in the summer of 1960, following the artist-run counter-festival in Newport, Rhode Island. This Newport Rebels Festival, as it came to be known, was staged to protest the hiring policies of the better-known Newport Jazz Festival. The musicians involved championed the notion of self-empowerment and a break from the traditional dependence on booking agents, promoters and record industry gatekeepers. The jazz artists skilled had proposed to produce concerts and to represent guild members in negotiations with club owners and record producers. There were some events organised in Manhattan in the months following the counter-festival, but the organisation folded soon after. Michael C. Heller writes in his book Loft Jazz, Improvising New York in the 1970s, that despite its short lifespan, the proposed agenda of the Jazz Artists Guild would resurface as the basic blueprint for several later collectives, self-presentation in suitable venues, collective bargaining in the music industry, artist-run educational programmes, and an egalitarian organisational structure. Trumpeter and composer Bill Dixon organised the October Revolution in Jazz in October 1964 at the Cellar Café venue on West 96th Street off Broadway. Dixon had gained a favourable reputation when booking musicians for this venue in the previous months by allowing musicians to rehearse there during the day and to play for as long as they wanted at the afternoon and evening shows. He also placed an emphasis on booking jazz artists whose contemporary styles meant they had difficulty obtaining work in the more traditional venues. The four days of music between 1st to 4th of October 1964 were organised with the intention of showcasing players of avant-garde jazz in the city in order to elevate the status of the music to the level of serious critical consideration and popularity. The events featured almost every major player of what was called the new music in the city at that time, including Sun Ra, Milford Graves, Giuseppe Logan and Paul Blay. The October Revolution led directly to the formation of the Jazz Composers Guild, which included in its membership pianist Cecil Taylor, saxophonist Archie Shep, Burton Green, the original occupant of the building housing studio Wee, 
and others who had performed at the Cellar Café. The plan was for the Guild to implement collective bargaining strategies to advocate on behalf of its member musicians. Guild representatives rather than individual musicians would negotiate performance contracts with the operators of music venues. These intentions were noble, but the foundations of the Guild were unstable, with too many musicians used to surviving at near subsistence level in the city. Shortly after the formation of the Guild, Archie Shep, with several children to support, entered into direct negotiations with Impulse Records for a recording contract without informing his fellow Guild members. They reacted furiously when this was made known. There was a further rupture when Sun Ra made the misogynistic suggestion that the involvement of female musician Carla Blay, wife of pianist Paul Blay, was bad luck for its male members. When Bill Dixon subsequently left, the Guild soon disbanded. In 1965, John Coltrane, Babatunde Olatunji and Yusuf Latif formulated plans for their own cooperative venture, the Triumvirate, based on similar strategies to those adhered to by the Jazz Composers Guild. These plans were, however, stifled by John Coltrane's untimely death in 1967. The objectives of these organisations were influential on the jazz and people's movement, led by multi-instrumentalist Rashan Roland Kirk and trumpeter Lee Morgan. The movement staged a number of notable protests during the recording of television talk shows hosted by Dick Cavett, Merv Griffin and Johnny Carson in the early 1970s. The purpose was to protest the lack of black artists hired for television work and to demand greater representation in media for black jazz artists, including on network television. Collective black artists headed by Reggie Workman, former bassist for the John Coltrane Quartet and Art Blakey's Jazz Messengers, was an initiative to progress the development of black music and arts based in New York City. The collective published its own newspaper called Expansion, with a view to preserving exposure for jazz artists in the face of diminishing audiences and media coverage. Leroy Jones' Black Arts Group presented new music in the streets of Harlem, the Bronx and Brooklyn between 1963 to 1965 to educate these communities, particularly school-aged children, about jazz. Similarly, the Jazzmobile Project, literally a bandstand on the back of a truck, founded in 1964 by Daphne Arnstein, an arts patron and founder of the Harlem Cultural Council, along with Dr. William Taylor, staged performances in these same neighbourhoods. By 1971, the Jazzmobile Project was receiving grants from the New York State Council of the Arts and quickly progressed from a summer season project to a year-round event with regular concerts, workshops and a lecture series featuring jazz heavyweights like Dizzy Gillespie to educate the next generation of jazz musicians. The Jazzmobile organisation is still active today. Musicians outside New York also explored collectivist strategies, the most renowned being Chicago's Association for the Advancement of Creative Musicians, founded in 1965. The AACM had lasting success and established a broad network of African-American artists to pursue its aims, which again included producing concerts, educational programs and the promotion of its artists. The AACM remains in existence today. The St. Louis Black Artists Group, or BAG, founded in 1968, operating until 1972, was generally seen as a sister organisation of the AACM. The BAG went further into the arts to promote not only musical performance, but dance, theatre, visual arts and creative writing. The BAG's dissolution resulted from diminished grant funding, but many of its members enjoyed independent success in the following years. Los Angeles Union of Gods, Musicians and Artists Ascension, founded in 1961, centred around live performance in local community centres, 
churches, mosques, schools and social centres, with a strong emphasis on community engagement. And considering how the lifespan of some of these organisations extended well beyond that of their New York counterparts, Michael Heller points to how the focus of the Midwest organisations such as the ASEM and BAG was centred on creating new institutions of their own, independent of the traditional music industry. This differed from groups such as the Jazz Artists Guild, which sought to utilise trade union strategies, but were nonetheless tied to the commercial music industry to a greater extent. Going back to the 1972 Newport Jazz Festival in New York City, the New York Musicians' Organization eventually resolved to send Newport's organizer George Wine a list of ten demands dictating how the festival should operate in the city. Seven of those demands made reference to promoting black artists and musical outreach efforts in Harlem. There was an intensity about the tone of these demands that many felt was unwarranted in relation to the Newport Festival and George Wine himself, who was generally thought of as being a decent man and a proper champion of jazz music. Many were quick to defend Wine, who they felt was being made a scapegoat for the artist's broader frustrations with the treatment of black artists in the music industry. In fairness, George Wine had indeed championed black artists who featured heavily in each Newport Jazz Festival and had been a vocal supporter of the civil rights movement throughout the 1960s. Demands made by the NYMO organisers, which related to the redirection of revenue flows, implied a personal criticism of Wine, but were actually more in line with a broader approach to redress systemic inequalities. For example, Wine had made a pledge to donate one half of the festival's profits to the Urban League, a civil rights organisation based in New York City, that would advocate on behalf of economic and social justice for African Americans. A number of the demands made by the NYMO organisers expressly referred to the Urban League being obligated to ring-fence a certain amount of those funds derived from the Newport Festival for a music school in Harlem and for a programme to address the wants and needs of black musicians, the pilot project for which would also be launched in Harlem. There was not a direct criticism of the Urban League in these demands, but implicit was a dissatisfaction with this moderate organisation and an apparent shift towards a more radical ideology consistent with proponents of black nationalism in the United States, such as the Black Panthers and the Nation of Islam. The NYMO were intent on celebrating jazz as an expression of African-American communities and as a means of self-empowerment for people within those communities. The NYMO musicians' reaction to Wine's proposed Urban League donation was reflective of the position the civil rights movement found itself at in 1972, following gains made by way of reforming legislation during the 1960s, the assassinations of Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, and the FBI's COINTEL pro-operation, which effectively dismantled the Black Panthers, as exemplified by the 1969 assassination of Fred Hampton in Chicago, had left activists uncertain about the next steps for social reform. The first national black political convention was held in Gary, Indiana in March 1972, with the aim of addressing the social and economic perils many black Americans were living through at the time. The convention was aimed at kick-starting the process of fundamental change in American society, one topic of discussion being the need for increased representation of black people in the American political and cultural systems. The convention nonetheless indicated a wide ideological tension between more traditional liberals and those nationalist factions who were emphatic that the existing political structures had failed and would continue to fail black people in America. The Gary Declaration, issued at the convention, was a powerful indictment of modern America, containing the statement that, quote, 
we lift up a black agenda, recognizing that white America moves towards the abyss created by its own racist arrogance, misplaced priorities, rampant materialism, and ethical bankruptcy. Therefore, we are certain that the agenda we now press for in Gary is not only for the future of black humanity, but the only way the rest of America can save itself from the harvest of its criminal past. The absence of a response from George Wine to the demands of the NYMO led its organizers to stage the New York Musicians Festival in 1972, partly as an act of protest. The festival lineup was programmed as a corrective to what organizers deemed to be flaws in Newport's approach. More left-field artists who had largely been disregarded by George Wine were spotlighted. Concerts were staged in all five boroughs of the city, including many free concerts. Partly to keep the costs low, artists split in public parks, community centres and lofts throughout the city. Studio Rivby hosted the magnificent saxophonist Anthony Braxton. Studio Wee hosted Leon Thomas and Clifford Jordan. And Mount Morris Park in Harlem was the venue for concerts by Pharaoh Sanders. Numerous other venues hosted festival artists, including Slugs on East 3rd Street, where the Sun Ra Orchestra had a residency in the early part of the 1970s, Free Life Communication on West 36th Street, and the Third World Cultural Centre in the Bronx. There were over 250 concerts at 100 discrete events in 22 venues across the city. The Counter Festival gained national and international media coverage and was so successful that the NYMO were able to avail of state and city funding for future events. Like their predecessors in the New York guilds of the previous decades, the NYO members found it difficult to sustain the energy of the 1972 Counter Festival. The Counter Festival had galvanised the jazz loft scene and strengthened the gravitational pull of New York for jazz artists throughout the country. This was evident the following year, when George Wine reached out to Sam Rivers to help him select a more adventurous artist roster for the 1973 Newport Jazz Festival again to be held in New York. This was to be the first stage in the splintering of the NYMO. Juma Sultan, James Dubois and Sam Rivers saw this olive branch offer from Wine as a validation of their actions in the previous year. Others, most prominently Rashid Ali, who formerly drummed for John Coltrane, saw aligning with Wine as ceding control back to the musical establishment they had been working to gain independence from. This led to Ali and a number of others leaving the organisation. Sam Rivers also left soon after. The 1973 Newport Festival in the city was a remarkable series of events. There were historical performances by jazz heavyweights, including Ella Fitzgerald at Carnegie Hall, which also hosted concerts by Benny Goodman, who performed with his legendary quartet featuring drummer Gene Krupa, Lionel Hampton and Teddy Wilson. The Apollo Theatre in Harlem hosted concerts by Dave Brubeck and Charles Mingus. However, the festival also showcased a large number of artists who were breaking new ground. Donny Hathaway, George Benson, Larry Coriel, Pat Martino, Keith Jarrett, Stevie Wonder, Roberta Flack, Ramsey Lewis, Freddie Hubbard, Jacques DeJohnette, Return to Forever and The Weather Report featuring Wayne Shorter. Chuck Manjone, Grover Washington Jr. and Roy Ayers Ubiquity performed a new form of soul jazz. <laughs> Part of the 73 festival, the Sun Ra Orchestra played Carnegie Hall on July 6th, brilliantly documented in the live album Spaces the Place. 
and the festival saw the New York premiere of the Art Ensemble of Chicago, the avant-garde jazz collective that grew out of the progressive black cultural group, the Association for the Advancement of Creative Musicians in the late 1960s. The Art Ensemble featured legendary saxophonist Roscoe Mitchell, who would record for the Wildflower series, recorded at Studio Rivby in 1976. Sun Ra would later record the brilliant Languidity album in 1978 with Bob Blank at his independent Blank Tape Studios loft at 20th Street on 6th Avenue. This would be one of the early significant releases from Blank's studio, which effectively became the in-house production base for Z Records in the late 1970s and early 80s. Z was the independent label that most effectively pioneered mutant disco. Blank managed to produce an eclectic range of acts, including Arthur Russell, James Jansen the Contortions and Kid Creole and the Coconuts, and was involved in pioneering work with disco remixers Walter Gibbons and Larry Levan. Minor issues like an absence of running water in the building between 6pm and 8am seemingly never hindered Blank's creative operations. The NYMO continued under the stewardship of Sultan Dubois and Milford Graves for much of the 1970s, with events overlapping with Studio Rivby and the SOUCA. The NYMO continued to host festivals well into the 1980s under various names, including the Five Boroughs Jazz Festival and the Studio Wee Park Concert Series. Although the organisation lost any credible claim to being an all-encompassing citywide collective for activism, its influence is evident in numerous musician-led organisations which followed. Between 1973 and 1977, numerous successful independent loft venues opened, including Studio Rivby, Studio Wee, Ali's Alley, Ladies Fort, the Firehouse Theatre and Sunrise Studios, all operated by organisers of the New York Musicians Organisation. Not all these venues were located in the former industrial lofts of Soho or Tribeca, but they did share common characteristics. Low admission charges or voluntary donations, a casual atmosphere with the lines blurred between performers and audience members, ownership and administration managed by the musicians themselves, and mixed-use space combining family residence, performance space, recording studio and often community centres. Many of the jazz lofts operated with the deliberate shared strategy of circumventing the traditional music industry channels, such as nightclubs, commercial record labels and established radio channels. There was also a concerted effort by loft artists to engage with their local communities and to develop the talents of young musicians from primary school level onwards something that was central to earlier jazz musicians' collectives such as the Jazzmobile and Black Arts Group. The jazz lofts were emblematic of the explosion of self-produced musical programming in New York during the early 1970s. The Blue Note saxophonist and former Miles Davis sideman, Sam Rivers, opened Studio Rivby in 1969 at his loft at 24 Bond Street between the Bowery and Lafayette, managing to acquire a liquor license by 1972. Studio Rivby was central to the progression of new jazz in New York in the 1970s. Rivers had located the property with the assistance of poet, painter and political activist Virginia Admiral, who, as a member of the Art Workers Coalition, was instrumental in obtaining low-cost housing for artists working in the area that became known as Soho. Admiral's son, actor Robert De Niro, would found the Tribeca Film Festival in 2002 to stimulate cultural activity in the same area following the destruction of the World Trade Center on 9-11. The photographer Robert Maplethorpe would later move into the same building, buying a fourth-floor loft for $15,000 in 1972. Rivby's brochure presented the venue as a cultural centre, but avoided the more confrontational approach of the NYMO. 
B Rivers managed business operations while her husband Sam coordinated bookings and served as music director. Their robust organisational structure helped establish links with other cultural institutions including James Dubois' operations, the Harlem Cultural Council, Collective Black Artists, the Centre for New Music and Creative Music Foundation in Woodstock. The New York State Council for the Arts awarded a grant in 1973 for Studio Rivby to host its own summer music festival which ran parallel to the 1973 Newport Jazz Festival in the city and the second New York Musicians Jazz Festival. The revenue structure developed so the grant funding guaranteed payment for musicians during annual festivals. More casual door gigs, where ticket sales created revenue, covered overheads for the venue throughout the year. Studio Rivby quickly surpassed the New York Musicians Jazz Festival as the preeminent showcase for New York's avant-garde jazz artists. The five releases comprising the series Wildflowers, the New York Loft Jazz Sessions, recorded at Studio Rivby May 14th to 23rd, 1976, released in 1977 on the disco label Casablanca, are essential documents of the city's jazz loft scene. The Wildflower series is featuring artists such as Sonny Murray, Dewey Redman, Roscoe Mitchell and Paul Blay is a valuable artifact of a period of jazz music that is notably under-recorded, under-photographed and under-celebrated. Rashid Ali, formerly a drummer for John Coltrane, moved into a second floor space at 77 Green Street in 1972. When the rug merchant on the ground floor left, Ali moved into the vacated unit and opened the performance space Ali's Alley, where he also operated survival records, recording live shows at the club. This was part of a deliberate attempt to attain self-sufficiency, with Ali decisively opting out of applications for governmental grant funding. Ali also created a nightclub at the venue, with a full bar and soul food kitchen. He claimed he was inspired by the avant-garde's exclusion from the mainstream jazz clubs such as the Village Vanguard, the Village Gate and Sweet Basil. Most of the significant left-field jazz musicians played at Ali's Alley during the 1970s. The independent jazz loft artists had gained influence as the 70s progressed, with relatively meagre grant funding support from organisations such as the National Endowment for the Arts, but wider commercial success was elusive. Avant-garde jazz artists faced the difficult task of finding their place in a market where the more muscular jazz-rock fusion of bands like the Mahavishnu Orchestra and the funk-derived Headhunters, led by Herbie Hancock, at the time one of the biggest-selling jazz albums ever, dominated popular jazz discourse. Adding to this feeling of being marginalised in the commercial jazz market, it was a common complaint among New York-born jazz artists that musicians arriving from other cities that played more traditional styles would be given more favourable local press coverage than the more extreme energy music pioneered by New York's own loft artists. Recording the most experimental jazz musicians in New York City and elsewhere for commercial release had often been a complicated endeavour. Debut Records was an American jazz record company and label founded in 1952 by bassist Charles Mingus, his wife Celia and drummer Max Roach. The label was formed as an independent venture with the intent of bypassing the major labels to distribute left-field jazz. Celia's family had put up most of the funding to launch the label, 
and she also managed the bulk of the label's business affairs. When she and Charles Mingus divorced, this led to the collapse of the label in 1957. Celia would later remarry to composer Saul Sands. Although the debut label was short-lived, there were a significant number of quality releases, with many jazz heavyweights making their first recordings as band leaders with the label, including pianist Paul Blay and saxophonist Hank Mobley. The label also released albums by Miles Davis, Coleman Hawkins, Albert Eiler and Eric Dolphy. After Bill Dixon's 1964 October Revolution, drummer Milford Graves and Don Pullen had formed their own independent record label, SRP, meaning Self-Reliance Project, where every aspect of the production was controlled by them, even down to the hand-painted record sleeves. Their first release was a performance by the Pullen-Graves duo at Yale University. Independent production and release was often a necessity, something that was taken to heart by the loft jazz musicians like Rashid Ali, who operated Survival Records to record live performances at his own venue. The New York-based record company ESP Disc deserves huge credit for recording a large number of the significant free jazz pioneers of the late 60s, everyone from Ornette Coleman, Paul Blay and Sonny Murray, to Pharaoh Sanders, Carl Berger, Albert Eiler and Sun Ra. Label operator Bernard Stolman had been a New York lawyer who worked as an intern in the law firm that managed the administration of the estates of Billy Holiday and Dizzy Gillespie, before eventually becoming Dizzy's personal attorney. He developed a love of jazz music and would eventually go on to provide legal advice to numerous jazz musicians on performance and recording contracts. Stolman would become entangled with artists recording on ESP disc over the distribution of royalties, something that would tarnish his reputation, but it remains important to recognise his efforts in recording what was incredibly challenging non-commercial music and establishing a gateway for future generations to these incredible musicians. In the late 60s and early 70s, many of the most talented avant-garde artists had to look to European labels such as the French company BYG to have their music recorded for commercial release. The European festival circuit offered a lifeline to these jazz musicians, especially in later years during the 1980s when the music's commercial viability was massively diminished. The recent release of the live album Pharaoh Sanders Live at Fabric Hamburg 1980 on the German label Jazzline is a brilliant record of a musical style that was virtually endangered at the time of recording, but sustained by the enthusiasm of its adventurous musicians and those recording engineers devoted to ensuring its survival. For an indicator of the brilliant experimental jazz albums recorded around this time in New York, have a listen to Dave Holland's debut as a bandleader, Conference of the Birds, recorded at Allegro Studios in 1972, which features Sam Rivers and Anthony Braxton dueling saxophones. There's also Cecil Taylor's Spring of Two Blue Jays, recorded at Town Hall in November 1973, and Crystals by Sam Rivers, recorded for Impulse Records at Generation Studios in 1974. In terms of major label recordings, the beautiful solo concerts Bremen Lucerne were released in 1973 by Keith Jarrett, who had moved from Boston to New York in 64. 
Keith played Rhodes Piano and Keys in Miles Davis's band around the time of Bitches Brew, recorded in New York before embarking on a brilliant solo career with classic releases on the jazz juggernaut Impulse Records and an incredible run of studio albums in 1971 for Atlantic Records, all recorded at Atlantic Recording Studios in New York City. Unlike many of his peers, commercial success would follow for Jarrett, whose Colm Concert Live album, released in 1975, became the best-selling solo jazz recording in history. Steve Baker, who had been working as an A&R man for Impulse Records during the Coltrane years, had convinced Clive Davis, formerly president of Columbia Records, to bankroll progressive jazz as part of his new label Arista, which is based in New York. Initial releases by the new label were older recordings of left-field jazz artists such as Albert Eiler, but the recruitment of new avant-garde artists followed. Air, Oliver Lake and Anthony Braxton all signed with Arista. Baker's business partner, Michael Cascuna, had prior experience with experimental jazz, having signed the Art Ensemble of Chicago to Atlantic Records. The adventurous approach at Arista was evident in the artists they signed, one of the first being saxophonist Anthony Braxton. This was an interesting move, given that Braxton was generally considered to be on the more oblique end of the spectrum for the era's jazz avant-gardists. Whereas many of the city's modern jazz players donned themselves in Afro-psychedelic attire, the handsome Braxton had a distinctive style, more like a hip college professor. Woolly jumper, unkempt afro, mutton chop sideburns. After returning from military service in Korea, he became involved in the Association for the Advancement of Creative Musicians in Chicago. As a side note, his son Tiondi Braxton, an experimental jazz and electronic musician, would go on to form Battles in the early 21st century, one of the great American bands of the past few decades. Prior to his move to New York in 1974, Anthony Braxton had played as a member of the Art Ensemble of Chicago in Europe. Treated as outsiders in Chicago, they both achieved a certain level of fame and adoration for more receptive European audiences. Establishing an outpost for American jazz musicians in Paris, where they lived for a number of years while touring the continent, both Braxton and the Chicago Collective eventually decamped to New York. Just as Philadelphia's soul jump-started disco, Detroit Stooges-inspired punk, these Chicagoans would have a significant influence on the city's jazz scene. The art ensemble were like a theatrical jazz version of the Wu-Tang Clan. Their live shows strayed into theatrical performance art, with set design and costume often incorporated to embellish their eccentric musical vision, something that chimed well with the mood of downtown New York in the early 1970s. Braxton lived with his friend Ornette Coleman and made money on the side as a chess hustler in Washington Square Park. His Arista debut, New York Fall 1974, and the subsequent five pieces in 1975, showcased Braxton's kinetic talent, while the standards set in the tradition released around the same time is equally impressive. Rent in the downtown area during the early 1970s was cheap. Rashid Ali paid $200 per month for the space at Ali's Alley but this would begin to change with the completion of the World Trade Center on April 4th, 1973. This commercial development was intended to stimulate the revival of the areas now known as Soho and Tribeca, and ultimately led to financiers moving into the Twin Towers, setting about reclaiming the surrounding loft district. These disused areas that had been revitalized by local artists were eventually seized on by developers to make them centers of modern lifestyle living. 
pricing out those very artists who had tapped into their potential in the first place. This was a pattern repeated in the first two decades of the 21st century in Williamsburg and other parts of Brooklyn and many other modern American and European cities. Like the band and Bob Dylan in 1966, Anthony Braxton and many of the other musicians from the loft jazz scene ultimately relocated upstate to the town of Woodstock in the Catskill Mountains. This effectively operated as a small artist's colony. Braxton became involved in a musician's retreat named the Creative Music Studio, established again by Ornette Coleman and German expat vibraphonist Karl Berger. As downtown rents began to rise, the CMS effectively became a rural outpost of the city's jazz loft scene with musicians developing a tradition of freely improvised music amidst the natural woodland surroundings. In terms of source material for this episode, there are three books I would recommend for anyone interested in going further into the detail of the New York loft jazz scene. The first is Loft Jazz, Improvising New York in the 1970s by Michael C. Heller, which I've already mentioned and quoted from. For a brilliantly detailed examination of the players of free jazz during the period 1957 to 77, read as Serious as Your Life, Black Music and the Free Jazz Revolution by Val Wilmer. And for an exciting and colourful overview of New York music in the years between 1973 to 1977, look up Love Goes to Buildings on Fire by Will Hermes, which races through a history of jazz, punk, disco, salsa, and other experimental music of the time. Thanks for listening. In the next few episodes, we're going to examine in detail how the artistic colonisation of Soho during the late 1960s stifle plans for the destructive Lower Manhattan Expressway project and how experimental electronic music and audiovisual art blossomed at the venue known as The Kitchen, first at its location in the Mercer Arts Centre and later at its second home at Worcester and Broom Street in the heart of Soho.